Well, I love my job, and I hope to have it for a really, really long time. But if I ever need a different job, I know the job that I want to have. I think I would be a great picker of what kind of movies would be successful, a movie producer. I don't have the wealth to make the movies, but I know the secret formula, and I'm going to share it with you today. A successful movie franchise includes three things, secret artifacts, an adventurous lead male character, and a conspiracy to hide the truth. If you get those three elements right, you can rake in hundreds of millions of dollars. How do I know this? Because I've seen Indiana Jones, National Treasure, and The Da Vinci Code. I mean, all three of these movies, they're basically the same thing. You have this secret going on. You have this, uh, you know, very dashing 40-something, you know, famous male lead. And then you have a conspiracy to hide those secrets. And what's interesting is in all three of these movie series that span different decades, there's a common element that goes even beyond that. And it's a group called the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar were a group of medieval um, kind of warriors. They became an order as a part of the Catholic Church during one of the bloodiest and darkest eras of the church known as the Crusades. And the Knights Templar were some of the most active fighters during the Crusades. And when somebody was brought into the Knights Templar, before they would go to war, they would be baptized. But the way that they did baptism was unique. And I have a prop here. Um, as, as you might guess, knights carry swords. And so uh, I didn't have any swords at home, but I do have two little boys who love Minecraft. And so I stole, I stole their uh, sword. I, I've got two boys, so I'll be using a different sword in each service so that they're both equally happy with me when I go home today. But, but when uh, the, the, the knights were baptized in the Knights Templar in the Middle Ages, they'd be baptized in a way that you've never seen a baptism before. I mean, when we do baptisms here at church, they're either on this stage or in the lobby or outside. You've never seen this kind of baptism before. When they would get baptized, they would be baptized, but they would hold their sword in the air. And every part of them would be baptized except for their sword. And that was a symbol that they were ready to devote all that they had to Christ, except for what they did with this. They were going to faithfully follow Jesus, except when they were holding on to this. Now, it might seem weird or creepy or bizarre if we started baptizing people and they started holding up things. <laughs> but part of me wondered if that would be more honest. Because we are all tempted to surrender some and not all to Christ. And maybe for you, it's not a sword. Maybe for you, it's your wallet and how you spend money. Maybe for you, it's your phone and how you interact with the world. Maybe for you, it's, it's how you talk or how you do your job or how you treat people or, or how you vote See, when I grew up, I remember hearing a song as a kid, I Surrender All. And I remember at one point, one of the worship leaders in our church saying that the, the truth is a lot of us don't sing I Surrender All, we sing I, I Surrender Some. And before you judge the Knights Templar, and uh, thank you, Wesley, for letting me borrow your Minecraft sword this morning. 
Before you judge the Knights Templar, I just would encourage you to recognize the fact that the call of Christ and the ways of the world stand at odds with each other. And when Jesus calls us to follow him, he doesn't call us to surrender partway, to give ourselves to him, but hold on to something else. Jesus calls us to give it all. And part of what we're doing in the lead up to Easter in this series that we're calling Live No Lies is, is we're talking about those enemies that get in the way of what God wants to do in us and through us. We're calling them the three enemies of your soul. And last week when we introduced this series, we said it's tough to win a battle that you don't even realize you're fighting. And so we tried to just kind of open your eyes and and wake you up to the fact that there are enemies of your soul that are keeping you and fighting against you and resisting what God wants to do in and through you. And we defined these three enemies as this, according to Ephesians 2, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so last week we kind of started unpacking the world, and today we're going to continue down that vein. And we said the world is a system of ideas and practices that are rooted in rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. The world certainly is this planet that we're sitting on, and the world is, is also the billions of people who live on it. But the world that we're talking about is ideas and practices that are against who God is calling us and creating us to be. And that world is something that we deal with every single day. And on Thursday of this week, I, 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 was, I was laying in bed. I did not want to get up. I was in that moment between when my phone went off and told me to get up and when I actually needed to get up. And a verse came to mind that was just so encouraging to me in some places where I'm fighting against the world. And it's John 16, There Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, Jesus said. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, Scott, the world has beat me up this week. I feel discouraged about the state of the world. I, I feel like the world is, is more powerful than me. I have failed. And, I, and this week is just a reminder of all the ways that I'm not powerful enough and not strong enough. And I've fallen short. I've, I've not done what I wanted to do. And I've done what I didn't want to do. Then I have good news for you today. And it's in the form of our big idea if you're taking notes this morning. The big idea for today is this. The world is more powerful than us, but it is not more powerful than Jesus. The world is more powerful than us. That's why you need to take it seriously. This system of ideas and practices that are rooted in rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil, it is more powerful than you. And that's why so often we fall victim to it. But the good news is that it's not more powerful than Jesus. That's why he said, in this world, you will have suffering, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. And so what I'm doing here today and in this series is not trying to pump you up with a sense of self-confidence that you can handle the world. What I'm trying to do is shift your focus from yourself in the midst of this battle to Jesus's strength in you as you are in this battle. And so today I've got four principles, if you're taking notes, to remember in our battle against the world. And the first one comes from the book of John, chapter 17. So if you have your Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on and head to John 17. 
John is the fourth of the biographies or accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John 17 is a prayer that Jesus spoke in the Garden of Eden as he was preparing, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, (laughs) different garden, very different garden. The Garden of Gethsemane as he's preparing to go to the cross. And he prays this prayer for you and for me. And beginning in verse 14, this is what it says. I've asked my friend Kelly to make sure those of you who don't have Bibles can follow along. He says this, I have given them, which is us, your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So here's the first principle I'm going to spend some time unpacking this morning with you, and it's this, that Jesus has sent us into the world. Jesus makes it very clear in this final prayer that he prays before he goes to the cross that that his father has sent him into the world for this very reason. All along, the plan was that Jesus would go to the cross to die for my sins and for yours. And in a similar way that God sent his son into the world, verse, verse 18 ends with this significant statement, I also have sent them into the world. And that's why I want to just remind you, and for some of you, introduce you to this reality, because some of us have heard a portion of this truth. And, And just so you know, when you hear a portion of the truth, and it isn't the full truth, it often is closer to a lie than it is the truth. And, and in this kind of Christian culture, subculture, we, we have all sorts of Christian things. You know, I can remember as a kid, we called it Jesus junk, you know. There was Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers and signs. And you now have a whole section of Hobby Lobby that has all of this art. One of the symbols of this I often see driving around, and it's this kind of bumper sticker, window sticker, not of this world. And, and this, this truth comes from John 17, where Jesus just said, you are not of this world in the same way that I am not of this world. In John 17, he says that that we as his followers are in the world, but we're not of the world. And here's what that means. We are physically in the world, you and I, right now. We're we're present in this world. We're not having some sort of like matrix-like mental experience. We're really living life physically in this world. But we're not of the world. We have a different character than the world. And Jesus spoke specifically about this to his disciples. In Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights the lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Earlier in that same text, Jesus used the analogy of salt and said, you are the salt of the earth intended to preserve, intended to give flavor to the world. Later on, what are the disciples of Jesus 
Peter in 1 Peter 2 would say, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Sounds like live no lies. He goes on and he says, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And so what Jesus is saying to us and what he's saying to us through his first followers like Peter is that we are sent into the world to have an influence. And this is significant because as the the power of the world, these ideas and practices become stronger and stronger, and it is more pronounced in its rebellion against God and its redefinition of good and evil, the challenge will be, the temptation will be, and it is already very strong in our world, that we would retreat from the world, that we would leave the world, that we would cocoon ourselves in a kind of Christian subculture and never engage it. you like, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Just let them go there. I'm getting out. I'm leaving that world. And that temptation is real. But friends, in the same way that the Father sent Jesus into the world, you and I are sent into the world. We don't have an option to say, hey, peace out world. You guys are toast. I'm just going to do my own thing. If we are followers of Jesus. Because the way that influence spreads is you have to be near those you're influencing. For salt to preserve meat, it can't be in the shaker. It has to be on the meat. For light to push back darkness, it has to be present in the darkness. And you guys know this. You know that behavior spreads through people. One of the best examples of this is yawning. (laughs) I mean, what happens when one person yawns? Everybody yawns. I put up a photo earlier with our staff this week and working on this message. And by the end of like two minutes, I was put up a photo of yawning. The whole staff was yawning. I mean, that's, that's how behavior spreads. And we become like the people we spend the most time with. And people become like us as they spend time with us too. And so the reason that Jesus in this final prayer in John 17 said, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I also send them into the world, is that he knew the only way for the world to be transformed was for his followers to be present and sent into it. So yes, the world is more powerful than us, but we're not telling the other people to be like us. We're telling them about the good news of Jesus who has come to save us. And that's why I just want to remind you, Jesus has sent us into the world. Second principle I want to share with you this morning is this, and that's that the world's temptations are not new, but they are powerful. The world's temptations, the temptations of this system of values and practices, they're not new. They're not surprising, but they are powerful. This week, This past week, if you were here for week one, we asked you to kind of take some notes. 
We asked you to pay attention to the messages that you heard as you were going through your, your days, as you were watching TV or scrolling on your phone or talking to people or walking around your neighborhood or at work. And, and we asked you to pay attention to listen out for those messages. And those messages were kind of summarized in the book of 1 John chapter 2, which we also asked you to read all throughout this week. So unless you memorized it this week, and if you did, good for you, I'd like to ask you to go from John 17 to 1 John 2. And I want to remind you of this passage that we read last week. Not, not John, 1 John, much closer to the end of the Bible, written by the same disciple of Jesus. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. And these, these three things that are defined here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, these are not new temptations. John articulates them, but they go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are tempted, these are the same temptations. The lust of the eyes. What was the fruit? It was good to look at. The, the lust of the flesh. Hey, you'll be like God. The, the pride. Hey, God's holding out on you and he's keeping something from you that you want. All three of those worldly temptations were present in Genesis 3. Then if you go from the beginning of the Bible to the middle and you find yourself in Matthew 4 where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, the same temptations come up. The, the devil tempts Jesus, hey, turn the, the stones to bread. It's been 40 days. Aren't you hungry? The lust of the eyes. Hey, Jesus, throw yourself off the temple mount so that everyone will see how great you are. The lust of the flesh. Jesus, bow down to me and all of this power in the world you can have. Pride. These temptations, friends, are not new, but they are powerful. And they're present in our world, the lust of the flesh. This is the, 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 the general area where most of our addictions come in our addicted culture. Sex, food, substances, power. All of that comes from our flesh, which we'll get into more next week. But that's what the world uses. It, it, it tempts us according to our flesh. It also tempts us through the lust of the eyes. The things that, that we want, the things that we're going after, a, a bigger house, a better view. We, we envy and have jealousy of what people have that we want. And then we move into the pride of life, self-obsession, self-love, you know, self-focus, self-drivenness, you know, a sense of purpose, going after what you want at all costs, and an inability or refusal to take any sort of feedback from other people. And when we think about the places where we have stumbled and where we have fallen in our lives, they fall in all these categories. And if you haven't seen yourself in any of the last three slides, friends, you're deceiving yourself. 
You got blinders on. You aren't that good. You aren't that powerful. And yet, let's go back to the big idea. The world is more powerful than us, but it's not more powerful than Jesus. So when these not new but powerful temptations come, we need to turn to Jesus who promised us to be courageous in this world because he's overcome it. Here's the third principle. The ways of the world today are visible if we have eyes to see and if we have ears to hear. The ways of the world are, are visible. Now, the, the way the world comes at us is often invisible. You think about values and practices. Those seem like very ethereal things, hard to see. But, but we're fighting in a spiritual war, and if we have eyes to see, we'll see it. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against people in the world. We're fighting against ideas, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And this is why it's, it's often so easy to be defeated by the world, because you don't see that battle. You know, when you can see what you're fighting, it's much, much easier to fight, but when you can't see it, it's harder But if you learn to have eyes to see and ears to hear, if you begin to know what to pay attention to, it'll become much easier. This week I I was reading and I was reminded of a quote by Yuval Harari, who is an atheist historian, talking about what I would say is the teachings of this world. And again, here's what an atheist historian says. He says, what was... Okay, we're going to go back here for a second. We're going to jump ahead. Kelly... Can you get me to? We're going to jump back to that quote in a second. He said this, in earlier times, it was God who would define goodness. Again, this isn't a pastor saying this. This is an atheist. In earlier times, it was God who would define goodness, righteousness, and beauty. Today, those answers lie within us. He says, our feelings give meaning to our private lives, but also to our social and political processes. See if you've ever heard some of these phrases. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The customer is always right. The voter knows best. If it feels good, do it and think for yourself. Harari says these are some of the main humanist credos. And he says himself as an atheist, hey, in the world we used to define what was good and righteous and beautiful and true by God, but we've moved beyond that. And now we define it by ourselves, individually. And so you can't tell somebody they're wrong when it's their truth. And, 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 and what Matt Smethurst says has shifted in our culture, and this is where I'm asking you to go back, Kelly, to what I skipped over because I got excited. <laughs> go back to the quote before this if you can. He says this. He says, this is what's happened. What was universally condemned is now celebrated What was universally celebrated is now condemned, and those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. That's what's happened. As we've shifted from what is right and true and timeless to what's right and true is defined by me and my feelings in the moment, what was celebrated now becomes condemned. What was condemned 
now becomes celebrated. And if you refuse to celebrate, you get condemned. That is the world that you need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And though that isn't visible the way you're visible to me and I'm visible to you, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, that kind of system is visible everywhere you look. So what I'm trying to do is help you to know what to look for in your battle against the world. And here's, Kelly, I need you one more time. Go to the picture at the end of all that that we can get back to. So in order to resist this world, friends, we need more than Sunday friends. A lot of you, your experience of Christian community can be summed up in what my friend Dusty used to call Sunday friends. You show up on Sundays here at the college, you go over and grab some coffee, you talk to somebody that you see every week, hey, how was your week? You hang out for a little bit after the service, you sit in the same spot with the same people, and when you move, you freak me out because you're not in your spot today. And then you leave. And so for 165 hours a week, you're trying to resist the world alone. And what did I tell you? The world's more powerful than you. And so to do that, you need more than just two hours of friendship every week. And here's what happens. As a pastor, I see this all too often. It shouldn't require a crisis for us to recognize our need for deep community, but it often does. Often what happens is it takes an emergency trip to the emergency room. It takes a crisis point in your marriage. It takes the death of a loved one. It takes the loss of a job. It takes a a mental breakdown for you to realize, oh my goodness, I'm isolated. Oh gosh, I don't have anybody in my life. And friends, it shouldn't require that, but so often it does. And the truth is, the ways of the world are harder to resist alone. I love you, but you're not that strong. You need other people to lock arms with in deeply loyal, incredibly foundational relationships. If you are going to live in a world where what was celebrated is now condemned, what was celebrated, what was condemned is now celebrated, and those who don't celebrate are condemned. You will not persist in that world by yourself. Here's the last principle. Our battle with the world will reveal the degree to which we trust God. This battle that we're in, whether you're aware of it or not, What it is going to reveal is the degree to which you trust God. Because that's what it did for Jesus. In that moment when he was praying for you and he said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you into the world, that was a battle of trust. If you remember, he, he sweat drops of blood because his anxiety was so strong, wrestling with whether he trusted his Father to go to the cross when he knew what it would mean. And he finally had a moment of surrender, not my will, yours, Lord, but yours. That was a trust conversation. And here's what Jesus says earlier in the dinner he had that we call the Lord's Supper. He said, remember the word I spoke to you, disciples? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So, so if Jesus experienced adversity because he would not go along with the world, we should also expect the same thing because none of us is greater than Jesus. But he goes on in another place with his disciples and he says this. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? See, that's the great danger. That that the world will tell us, hey, you can have all of this if you just give up who you are. If you give up the ways of Jesus. You can have it all. That was the temptation Adam and Eve faced. That was the temptation Jesus faced. That's the temptation you're going to face. Because what Jesus is calling us to do is not just follow his teachings, but live according to his ways. For some of you, that thing you're holding out of the water is that you want to still play in the world by the world's rules. A couple years ago, when we were kind of in the height of the intensity around the 2020 election, I heard followers of Jesus say, hey, yeah, we just can't do that whole turn the other cheek anymore. That doesn't work anymore. We we, we can't play by those rules still. We're going to get beaten. So are we following the teachings of Jesus and the ways of Jesus? Are we just holding on to his ideas, but we're adopting the world's ways? And what Jesus calls us to do is he says, if anyone's going to come after me and wants to follow me, he or she must deny himself. Now, I got, I got to tell you, when I was a teenager, if you'd asked me what my favorite verse in the Bible was, it was that verse. But what happened is I got taught a version of that that was a skewed interpretation. Deny yourself meant deny your emotions, deny what's going on in your body, deny all of those things. And we are to deny ourselves, but we're not to deny our feelings or our bodies. You see, yourself is that part of you that is shaped and influenced by the world. And you have to deny that if you're going to follow Jesus because the ways of the world are opposed to the way of Jesus. So you deny those things that aren't aligned with him. But you don't deny that you have feelings or have emotions. Jesus didn't. He wept. He was enraged. He he battled anxiety. You don't deny your bodies. I mean, Jesus didn't spend his whole time on earth fasting. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. He, I would say he was a foodie, you know, like he apparently made the best wine that was there. The sommelier was impressed. <laughs> so to deny yourself is not to deny your feelings and your bodies. What Jesus is saying is this, you either deny Jesus and you follow yourself or you deny yourself and you follow Jesus. That's about as black and white as it gets. The world will tell you, hey, it, you're not going to get what you go- want going his way Follow yourself. Do what feels right. Embrace your truth. But Jesus says, no, if you're going to come after me and follow me, you have to deny yourself. That's why famously Diedrich Bonhoeffer in the 1940s said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you're going to follow Jesus, what's going to have to die is yourself. 
That part of you that is at odds with Jesus and is fighting to hold on to your life, that's holding the sword out of the water. And that's why the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached was this. He said in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I know the word repent has a lot of baggage, but I love how John Mark Homer explains the definition of the word repent. He says what what Jesus is saying here is rethink everything you think you know about what will lead you to the good life and trust Jesus instead. Rethink every place where the world's ideas have shaped your thinking and your living. And instead of trusting the world, trust Jesus. And friends, that's the battle that we have been fighting since the garden. Will we trust Jesus and his way? Or will we go the way of the world? And by we, I mean me. Because this is where this message and this series has really hit home for me. I was reflecting this week about some places in my life where I stepped out in obedience and trust to follow what I felt like God wanted me to do. And like happens for you, it didn't go the way I expected. Wasn't the plan I had in mind. Okay, God, I'll do that. But oh man, I didn't know it was going to involve all this. I thought this was going to be a short-term season of difficulty. Now we're going on months. I thought when I gave that up, you were going to just slide right in and provide something else, and I'm still waiting. I trusted you, but I'm waiting to see the fruit of that obedience come out. And friends, here's what I've been experiencing, and maybe you can relate. Since the garden, we've struggled to trust that God is more committed to our good than we are. I mean, the one thing I know about you is that you are committed to you having a good life. All of you. Like, you're committed to you having a great life. And the challenge with trust is the world will tempt you to to believe that you're more committed to your good life than God is. And the truth is, for a lot of us who will sing full-throated worship songs and read the Bible this week... Quietly and silently in our heart, we doubt that God is more committed to our good than we are. So when the world's whispers come, we fall victim to doubting that God is really that committed, that he really loves us that much. And maybe this week that's what you need to wrestle with. Do I really trust that God is all in on working for my good and for my benefit? Do I really believe that God is not holding out on me? And that's why I want to remind you, the world is more powerful than us, but it's not more powerful than Jesus. And that's where our hope has to lie. If you've got your notes out, I'd encourage you to turn them over to the back and explore a couple next steps with me. First, Number one, I want you to identify what you're holding out of the water. What's that thing? I trust God with everything but this. Uh, I will, I surrender all up to this. 
What's that thing that you're holding out of the water? What's that place that you still haven't let go? Number two, with a trusted friend, I want you to discuss where you've been sent into the world and what your next step of faithfulness looks like there. And I said with a trusted friend because I want you to lean into the fact that you can't do this by yourself. You either need somebody encouraging you because where you've been sent, you're the only one. Or maybe you discover once you've been sent there that there's somebody else and you lock arms together and you're going to be faithful together. And then number three, I want you to use the talking back tool to replace the world's lies with God's truth. We mentioned last week that this series was inspired by a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. At the end of his book, he's got a great tool that we're making available to you today that's based around the idea of talking back. Now, if you have kids or you are a kid, this is the only time you are ever going to hear me encourage you to talk back. My son's here. Wesley, this is not about you talking back to me. But we've got a tool that we're going to tell you about and show you where to find in a second. But it's a three-part tool to help you talk back to the lies that you hear. And here's step one. We want you to write out the thought or the feeling or the sensation that comes when you're struggling against the world. Let me give you an example of what this might feel like. This might be the feeling of, I'm worried about losing my job and not being able to make my car payment. That probably is because the average car payment in America is like $1,000 right now. So it's a legitimate concern. Okay. But number one, identify that thought, feeling, or sensation. Step two is this. Look for the lie underneath the thought, feeling, or sensation. Basically, what I'm asking you to do is to not believe yourself as much, to question yourself, to not just accept every thought that comes in your mind. Because the lie underneath that concern about losing the job and not making the car payment is probably something like this. My safety and security are in my job, and owning newer and nicer things will make me happy. So, so I'm just going to dig a little bit under that thought or feeling. And then third, I want you to write out a Bible verse that counters that lie. And so I've, I've brought one today for the lie we just shared. It comes from the book of Hebrews chapter 13, which says, keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so what I'm going to ask you to do this week is to begin to talk back to the lies when you hear them. We've made a copy of this available. These are at the connection table in the lobby. And for those of you watching online, you can go on our website, prescottcornerstone.com resources, and get your own tool. Some of you already do this, but we're asking you to go one step further. Maybe when you think a thought, you go, hey, is that true? Well, instead of just pausing, identify why isn't it true and then what replaces the truth. Others of you, your thoughts and your feelings drive your whole life. And what we're asking you to do is to take those thoughts captive and align them with the truth of not what the world says, but what God says about you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that in the midst of this challenging world, with these ideas and values and practices coming our way every day that aren't aligned with you. In fact, they're aligned with rebellion against you and redefining what you've called good and what you've called evil. We thank you that you are present with us in this world. 
Not only did you send us into the world, but you promised us that we would never be alone, that you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us, that you are with us always. And this world, Jesus, it so often feels stronger than us, especially in those moments, Jesus, where we feel defeated and we feel like failures and we we stumbled and we fell again. But we thank you that in the midst of the fire that we're in, we're not alone that you're with us. And that's why we can be confident. That's why we can be courageous. Because we know you overcame this world on the cross and in the tomb. We're going to celebrate that in a month. And because you conquered the world and because you're present with us, we can be confident no matter what comes our way. So Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters who've been beat up and defeated and discouraged by the world. I pray that you'd strengthen them and lift them back up. I pray for those who haven't even been aware of what's been going on around them, that you'd give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And for those who've compromised Jesus, I pray that you would would cut down into the hardness of their heart. You'd convict them and you lead them into repentance. Jesus, we thank you that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is your presence and there is your promise. We thank you for being with us, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.